Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Michael Collow, who is Chief Executive Officer of Evolved Reasoning, an advisory firm focused on helping businesses with the adoption of artificial intelligence, including ChatGPT and other large language models. Michael, good to see you again. Hello, hello. How are you? Very good, very good. Thanks for doing this. Um, so let's let's go a little bit back to your background. You are first and foremost a quantitative investment professional, having worked at the likes of Fidelity, XI Investment Managers, and even Superfund Hesta. So how did you get involved in the space of artificial intelligence? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Look, I, in the course of my career, I saw this conversation change materially from, I suppose, when I first came out of my PhD, people were talking about statistics and econometrics, and maybe even continuous time finance, if you remember those days. And then around 2012, this new animal came on the block, and it was a machine learning person. And it was uh, it was not coming from an economics background or even statistics background. This person came from a computer science background, and and they had a very different approach to data. They had a very different approach to using you know CPUs and making big calculations. And this whole genre began, I suppose, which we now term as AI began at the time with data science. And, and, and just to be fair, maybe it's a good point to, to distinguish here. As economists or as statisticians, we had this more classic science approach. We, we said, look, here's a hypothesis. Let's go to the data and see if we can find evidence for that. Whereas the data scientists went the other way. They said, there is a pattern in the data. The only issue is I, I need to throw more computing power or I need to throw more data to find it. And so they were in the hunt for bigger models and more complex models, but less explainability, while the, the classic people like me were on the hunt for, for proving themselves. So over the course of my life, I suppose I became interested in, in that field, and I certainly became a speaker on it. I started a podcast series on it as well, which was lots of fun, called Curious Quant, and kind of started to really think about the applications of this stuff. And then ChatGPT came along and just kind of changed, yet again, the direction of the whole area. Yeah. Now, you did recently uh, a presentation and you sort of pulled up some statistics that I thought was pretty interesting. It was based on a study by KPMG and the University of Queensland. Um, and it basically illustrated that Australia is the country that least trusts AI in the workplace. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I, I have theories. I think we, we all do. 
Um, I think typically those countries that are more into AI in terms of more trust or more understanding of it are those countries where there's a significant national push for adoption of AI. So China and India, you see at the top of this list because their jobs, their economy, their welfare depends upon them being across technology as a sector and as an industry. I think in Australia, we've been on the opposite end of that spectrum for a while. We've been materials and financial services and and tourism, if you want. And ultimately, we, you know, our, our knowledge economies in terms of production of unique technologies is pretty small. We don't really have a lot of these kinds of uh, companies. We certainly don't have a big national pool in that direction. We don't have a lot of leadership across governance and, and boards and so on in that area. So I'm not surprised that if left to their own capability, the average citizen on the street kind of went, well, the only thing I know about AI is what Hollywood tells me. And what Hollywood tells me is that it's terrible and it's evil and it's and it's going to kill us all. So Skynet, Terminator mixed with whatever. Yeah, the killer robots are coming. The killer robots are coming. And, and you know, even though they might have some difficulty on the beach because, you know, soft sand and stuff, um, you know, they, they still will come. And so therefore, I don't like AI. I don't trust it. More importantly, I think it's going to take my job. And because it's going to take my job, I, I it just all seems too hard for me. So in that context... Australia was at the bottom of that list. Joined with Australia, interesting enough, were a couple of other nations, which I wouldn't have thought, the UK being one of them. Yep, and Japan. And Japan as well. Um, and I do wonder whether that's an age thing in Japan's case or what it is. But I do know in the UK's case, there's there's a lot of questions around what the future of that country looks like in terms of industry and, and economy. You're obviously not one of those that distrust the AI. Why are you uh, positive on it? And what sort of... Um, applications do you see uh, when it comes to the investment industry? So, I, I look, I, I, I'm generally speaking not pessimistic about AI because I think ultimately it's a tool that can be deployed to help people. And, and if I look at the startup community and people that are trying to create businesses, I see people trying to help other people, actually, either by making their lives more efficient or by overcoming barriers or, or whatever else that they can do. So in that context, like I, I see a lot of positivity in intentions, for example. I think in asset management, it's a great question. So asset management as an industry, not the super industry, but asset management specifically, is an industry that's had a tough time, right, since the global financial crisis. Fees are down. There's a there's a real squeeze in the middle of the distribution there. And, you know, the very mega, mega shops and the passive, on the one hand, on the other side, the boutique and, and the need to appeal to customers and so on. So it's been a tough industry to be in. And I think there's been a lot of focus on efficiencies. There's a lot of focus, relentless focus on performance, of course as always. Um, so any kind of edge has been adopted really quickly. As, as soon as technology or data comes along, um, you know, most asset managers will be the first to try to understand it or to, to integrate it if they can in different kinds of ways. And I think with this kind of AI systems, the language models, so not classic models, which are more data focused, but language models, I think the, the potential to create a much more evolved and sophisticated narrative and communication wrap around these products is available. And, and so far, if you think about this industry, it's filled with people who have pretty serious degrees, like masters, PhDs, they're highly technical people. They've usually performed really well academically. When they go into these jobs, they're interested in creating a better spreadsheet or a better financial model or a better analytical framework. And there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of complexity and so on behind this. There's a lot of technical expertise that lives in this industry, but often it's not well communicated. The bridge between technical to non-technical is not often traversed. 
um, and certainly not often traversed well. And so there, there's this almost kind of a barrier between the everyday or even the consumer of these products. So I think language models could could build those bridges really well and could become a lot more sophisticated way of these institutions bridging those gaps um, if they chose to do so. So is it almost more um, as a technology to communicate with members or do you also see it applied in sort of the research side of, of investments? I, I look, as human beings, we're sitting here right now in your amazing offices having a conversation using language and we're you know conveying to each other pretty complex ideas using language. Turns out that humanity does that everywhere all the time. That's what we do every day. All right? Very few of us don't spend a day where we're not talking to somebody about something. So language models are, are incredibly omni-powerful in the sense that they can touch every part of this uh, value system. So certainly if you're super fun and you're trying to communicate to a million members, you have no other choice but to use AI. There are no, is nothing else on the table for you anymore. Um, and I think increasingly not so. Even if you have today maybe a, a decent-sized customer service operations in the future, you'll have to augment it and probably automate it at some point with availables. Um, so I think member engagement, customer engagement, technical engagement is there. The good news is language models are very good at communicating technical information and actually talking to customers and, and invoking empathy and sympathy and so on. When it comes to research, as you mentioned, we're living in this world where most people are flooded by too much information. So between all the news uh, sources that, that was the, you're familiar with to all the research to all of the um, co- the actual uh, company stuff that's coming through, not to mention the additional requirements like ESG or other kinds of characteristics that our companies, are, uh, investment managers and uh, um, asset owners are trying to get across. It's easy to say that there's way too much information coming in. So language models are very good at filtering, summarizing, creating much more streamlined arguments. And then I think if you've got a very disciplined investment process, language models can also help you to understand relevance. So all this information that's coming in is not relevant for you because X, Y, Z, but this other information is relevant because it talks about one of the important elements in your investment process. And do you want to update your understanding of that element, whether that's inflation or or interest rates or whatever else it is. So language models can directly go, right, I'm going to scan these news. I'm going to pull out all of the salient points relating to inflation. I'm going to analyze its relevance. I'm going to show it to you, dear investment manager or asset allocator, whoever you are. And I'm going to help you to kind of, you know, screen that down a lot more. So how do you set boundaries around um, the space that these language models can operate in? And so I'm I'm sort of asking that because um, we did in the past uh, an interview with Ashby Monk, who was looking into uh, knowledge management. And I asked him if JetGPT was the solution to this this issue, um, because I think when... ChatGPT uh, 4 came out, they gave sort of this um, example of application in Morgan Stanley in their wealth division, where they basically said we have all these processes and knowledge, and in the past all of our advisors had to scroll to PDFs and try to find the right procedure, and now they can just use this chatbot basically to find the right data. But at the same time, when you play around with it and you feed it information, sometimes it just makes up stuff completely. So Ashby was saying... You know, I, I fed in my uh, biographical information in there, asked it to write a resume, and it came up with books that I, I never wrote, the universities I never went to. But it all sounded plausible, but it was just not true. So is he currently using that CV? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I don't think he needs it. <laughs> I mean, hey, why not, right? Um, no, I, I, 
so a lot of this is about prompting and the way that you use the system. So, so let's be fair. This system has been out for eight months. So whenever you ask anybody, myself included, and say, what can it do when it cannot do? We'll give you an indication, but it's literally a spaceship and we're walking into the kitchen of the spaceship making ourselves a coffee. Like that's the level that we understand this thing. And so I think in terms of understanding when it defaults to context that you've given it versus context that it's embedded in the knowledge that it has, I think we need to understand better. But my experience in this field has been that when you supply it as a specific kind of input characteristic and you prompt it correctly, it will only use that specific input characteristics. But more importantly, when you're using it as a knowledge management database, the idea is that a lot of people will they'll embed knowledge not as a prompt but into a special kind of database it's kind of linguistic association database that means you lose certain kind of information but you gain associative information what does that mean that means that for example if i've got a very long legal contract and it's really neatly clause 1.2 1.3 1.4 whatever but the idea of shareholder equity for example is mentioned in many different places I can ask it things like, give me all of the examples of how shareholder equity is related in this document. It'll give me something beautiful, like it's true. But if I ask it for clause 1.3, it won't be able to give me exact 1.3. So it hasn't structured the information as I have given it, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. It's actually structured it within kind of the, the semantic relationships that, that it has within it. And so again, this nuance about to what level of accuracy of information do you need? To what level of precision versus broadness do you need? Kind of, I think, challenges us as individuals to go, what am I actually looking for? What is the nature of this information that I have at my fingertips? And so far, we've kind of dumped it all into a file and we've gone, it's over there. And we've treated it all like um, Excel spreadsheets almost, like where you, you have a precise data point in that row coming out in that particular way. I think these language models will grow and develop and certain categories of them will be you know, point precise and will have iterative natures that will check again and again and again and then it'll give it back to you. And other versions of it like will be more dreamy and kind of, I suppose, more imaginative and creative. It'll kind of come up with stuff, but it'll be fine for your use case because it'll kind of work for it. Yeah, you showed these interesting pictures where it sort of shows the evolution of uh, the, the models where I think you had a old lady sitting in front of a window in a, in a cafe and the first one was was almost a bit scary, cartoonish, and it ended up with almost a photo-perfect image. Um, is, is, is that sort of what we continue to see, this this increased resolution almost of, of, of the, uh, the answers? Yeah, um, so it's a very good question. So science is never as linear as it appears to be. So in this particular case, the, the graphic I showed you was in mid-journey and it went from you know, 2022, 2023 and, and the image resolution became like photorealistic and beautiful and clear. And one might say, wow, that's really good. Obviously they added a lot more data, a lot more processing power. And sure enough, we will see more models like Gemini being released later this year. And some of these models that are on the runway right now are touted to be incredibly powerful and chat GPT killers in the sense that they will come in and outplay those models. There's a couple of different issues here. One of them is that in some ways they retain the same flavor of language model. So they will continue to have the same kind of problems that we discussed about linguistic association versus material fact, knowledge model versus language model, that kind of stuff. So in, in that context, I think they'll be more of the same. In another sense, you might say, gee whiz, if this thing is getting bigger and bigger and you know the spaceship is just getting bigger and bigger, and bigger we got the de destroyer or whatever uh, in a moment, 
is any organization, any single organization really capable of using it? Like, is, is that really realistic that anybody has a need for a hundred language model that can do, you know, 5,000 different things at the same time? Or should we really be building smaller and more niche models that are highly efficient in terms of energy usage, water usage, coolant usage? There's a lot of research now coming out about how if you have a hot summer, actually you may not be able to run your language model because of the amount of electricity it takes and whatever. So you need to be a lot more efficient and, and need to bring it down. But at the moment, these tech companies are in this cycle of competitiveness where Google has been seriously uh, outpaced by Microsoft and OpenAI and they're on the back foot. In order to retain their competitive advantage and their industry position, they have to almost come back with something bigger and better. And I think, you know, in some sense, the rest of the world is dealing with the fallout of that, like the, the, in, in terms of the sparks coming off the, the giants kind of clashing with each other. The way you ask questions and set parameters in these models is, is quite important. Do you think that as these models continue to evolve that maybe this almost becomes like a, a specialized skill in how to properly interact with these language models? Or do you think it will become more of a generic user type of interface? So at the moment, this, this area is called prompting. So prompting is what you put in. It's purely linguistic based. There's no syntax structure like you would have in a Python code or whatever. So people kind of express what you want to do and then your choice of words uh, really contextualizes what you get back. So the difference between analyze or summarize might be a subtle difference in conversation, but for language models, it's a big difference. At the moment, we've kind of opened that up to the average person to play with. So the average person comes along, and for some people, they're very creative. They're like, wow, I, I know how this works. And for others, they kind of stare at it and go, look, I, I don't know how else to say it. I just want a report. That's all I want. Like, what, what, why are you making me do this? I think given the world we live in, which is tech companies relentlessly trying to make things easier, and by easier I mean less complex, and by less complex I really mean dumbed down, I think what we'll see is we'll have prompting solutions for you that will take what you're doing uh, and kind of simplify. So one example is one of the projects we're working on is a prompt structuring hierarchy, which basically takes your company's language and tone and creates what you want from it in terms of uh, this is how you talk about your products in your language and your way. So anybody using the large language system in the future just relies upon a globally set brand, if you want, for, for prompting and language. And within that context then chooses a little bit of autonomy, but they take a lot of that off the shelf. So again, I, I, I see that area kind of becoming institutionalized and, and kind of scaled. So if companies starting out and they wanted to incorporate AI in, in their businesses, what are sort of some of the key challenges to overcome there? So this is a very important thing to understand. So AI is a very broad term. So there's AI, which is kind of your traditional AI, which says uh, you've got some data on your customers, you want to understand more about your customers. Wonderful. Just go and throw up a uh, visualization board, have a look at some summary statistics, get a sense of what's happening in your business make some decisions. That's not AI, it's just data, looking at data, fine. Then you want to say, right, I want to understand when my customers are going to leave or come or when they're going to switch products or whatever. And there's a little bit of what's called predictive analysis, which is a form of modeling, which could be construed as AI, depending on what you use. To do that, you'll have to have your usual data science, your lake, your, your people and whatever behind it. Generative AI is a very different classification to that. It doesn't concern itself with numbers or, or forecasting of data points. It concerns itself with forecasting of language points. 
And that basically means that you can take it off the shelf today from any number of vendors, which are ever increasingly growing. So you've got the bigger ones like ChatGPT, like Bard, um, like um, the one in um, Anthropic, uh, but also things like Perplexity and others, where each one of these are kind of sitting on a language model that's kind of big and being coded. And you as a business owner can come in and go, I want you to do X, Y, Z, test it, have a look at it without having any sense of unique data or whatever else. Clearly, you have to watch your data privacy. Clearly, at the moment, you don't want to put in customer-related data. Clearly, you want to be aware that these are language models and not knowledge models. Don't ask for the truth. Don't say, what is the population of Australia? You might get back a nice data point, sure. But if you purely ask ChatGPT, it will kind of come back with whatever it's been coded on. If you ask BARD or something else that is inherently connected to the internet, it will give you a reference probably to a Wikipedia page and say that this Wikipedia page says that it's 25 million. But using it as knowledge models where you're asking how to do something and what is the truth, always be aware that those references are very important. And if they're not giving it to you, then don't use it. What you should be using it for, and I don't think this is a barrier, but understanding it, is just transformation. I want to write emails or hyper-personalized messages to my customers, or I want to have a quick response. I want to train my internal staff. It's very interesting. Gen Y, they had this recently, another report uh, survey. Gen Y has 70% use rate. It, it's in crazy, crazy high. Gen X and boomers, 60% have never heard of it, right? It's the other way. People that are young into your business, coming out of high school, university, whatever, they will be naturally clinging on to this thing called ChatGPT. So what fascinates me is like you don't have to do anything for adoption. It's already in your young people and it's going to be already in your Microsoft uh, tools as well. So I think one of the reasons why young people have heard of uh, ChatGPT as well is because they probably were told by the teachers that they're not allowed to use it. So of course they're going to check it out first uh, straight away. Um, but if we if we look at sort of uh, coming back to the investment industry, there have been sort of attempts made on building signals out of this stuff, out of uh, out of language. I think you know a, a very common one from the past is trying to understand sentiment in releases, company releases, annual reports, that sort of thing. As as we go forward, do you think that this can be used for alpha generation, or is it more sort of on the administrative side? Oh, it absolutely can be used for alpha generation. But I, I think the most, the, the lowest fruit hanging, which, which I suppose is the area that hasn't been touched so far, is about clearly about what you said about reporting, communication. We all have to write market updates. We all have to tell our investors what's happening in our funds or in our investment process. We have to explain ourselves constantly because it's a white collar industry. And the white collar industry just pushes information around. So clearly, 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 we have to do that. And historically, there has been so much attention paid to that because it's really been about performance. If you have performance, everybody else understands and believes you. If you don't have performance, then, you know, get performance. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of like, there's not that much going on there. Yeah. Whereas I think the alpha generation side, certainly when it comes to news and sentiment analysis, topic analysis, I think it provides some really interesting frameworks for you to do that. But to me, the even more interesting part is not so much the quantitative elements of replicating what you've already can do with natural language processing or data sets, but it's more about holding yourself to a higher level of questioning and reasoning. So let's say, for example, you're an asset manager and you have an idea of security, you've got a thesis, and you've got this competing news story, or you've got some other ideas. You can feed that into this language model and say, take the opposite part of, my, of this argument. Argue with me why it's not a good idea to invest in this stock. R raise all the points. And you can actually have a quite 
you know, kind of a, almost like Greek philosopher type, you know, stoic kind of philosophy type of argument to say, actually, in that case, there's three other reasons here that are counter to yours, or this doesn't necessarily lead to that. And it should raise, dare I say, evolve the conversation and, and the kind of understanding of these points, which often you don't get in, in, um, in these conversations because people have authority, power, like a CIO says something and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're the CIO, you have to be right. And you don't have that kind of nice two-way conversations. Americans are really good at that. Americans, when typically when they're having, they almost have a, a proper shouting match about what is a good stock, what is a bad stock. There's no emotions, there's nothing withheld. And whatever survives that kind of interaction, that kind of combative argument is then you know, considered to be a robust way of investing or a robust idea. But anything that doesn't survive it, and I think, again, using this AI system to do that kind of thing could be really, really powerful. Yeah, so instead of using it as an oracle and a source of truth, you, sh- you use it as a devil's advocate. Yeah, devil's advocate, brilliant. You. Absolutely. And it's really good at that. And it's really good at taking the counterpoints. Well, one of the presentations I did, I took um, former Governor uh, Lowe's um, uh, sort of transcript with a bunch of reporters he was doing, talking about the world and inflation and China or whatever. And I asked you to summarize and, and created a nice little summary of it. And then I said, look, oh, this is my thesis. Um, take the other point of view from Lowe's arguments and, and can't argue against me. How is it different? How is it the same? Why is it not the same, et cetera? In fact, you could actually personify the language model and say, you'd be Barry. Barry's my, my co-manager. Barry always disagrees with me. Now, you know, get Barry to disagree with me on this one. Like, you know, those kinds of ideas. Yeah, so it, in that sense, it could almost help with creating some cognitive diversity into the argument. I think that's a really good point. And it's interesting how far one wants to go with that. Right? You could go kind of quite far with that. You could say, you are a particular kind of, you're, you're a psychologist background, cognitive scientist background. Your name is not Barry, but, you know, um, Sally. And your role here is to challenge me on my assumptions regarding these particular sets of things. And, and I think, again, you can actually get the language model to create multiple personas. And each of those personas are challenging you in terms of what you could or should be doing. Yeah. Could you extend it as far as saying that you could use it for scenario testing, scenario modeling, stress testing, where you give it hypothetical uh, situations and ask it, what have I not thought about or give me different ways of how this evolves? I I think so. I I think specifically, uh, so today when we talk about scenario testing, we tend to talk about a pretty loosely defined scenario, like everything's fine, everything's not fine, or everything's medium, usually. And then we look for numbers. Oh, the markets are down 5%, the markets are up 5%, whatever else it is, right? So it's not it's not well defined in terms of all the things that are going underneath the hood. I think what you could do with this one is say, look, I want to picture a world where oil prices have risen by 30%, where conflict in the Middle East is broken out, where you know Ukraine, Russia has calmed down. What are the other things that could be happening in that scenario? So in, in that scenario, um, could it potentially find correlations that you haven't thought of? Because um, usually you're trying to find patterns uh, with, with uh, some of these AI models. Could it find correlations within sort of these stress scenarios? It's, it's a great question. I... Th- quietly think so this is an a still a new area i think what it can probably help you understand is associations so in a world where i don't know south america is defaulting brazil is defaulting on its debt what are the kinds of things that you might expect to see and i would expect that semantically there'll be associations of that type of character with previous news articles or research pieces or books 
that have described those situations and have noted other things around those situations. So what you'll get back is a kind of a, a human historic in dash interpretation of what are the other things that are happening at the same time as those things are happening. And again, like everything else has been trained on historic data, so therefore it's the history that kind of is guiding that. But again, it's it's it give it should give you much more of a flavor of creativity. Um, or or indeed you can ask it also to create generate scenarios for you. What I mean obviously what we've been talking about is modifying, expanding it. You could say, can you generate for me three economic scenarios that have this kind of flavor to them where oil prices are going up but are very different in terms of other things that are happening in the world. And it'll kind of create for you very creative, very different kind of ideas of what that could look like. So if we sort of uh, do a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Um, just a little bit? Just a little bit. Maybe maybe next five years. Where do you think uh, we might see sort of innovation in this space and, and where can it take us? Good question because let, let's go back five years, shall we, you and I? 2018, we're sitting here 2018, slightly younger version of ourselves. Um, but gee whiz, it's been a fun five years, hasn't it? COVID, um, you know, see generative AI, the, you know, speaks of maybe fusion technology being closer, quantum certainly taking big jumps forward. Um, it, we're going through some weird time in history, or it feels that way. Maybe it always feels like that, but it certainly feels like that now, whereby we, we seem to be, we seem to be, kind of um, on the edge of a number of different things that could be happening around the world. Now, these are all capability-led, researchy, sorry, research-oriented kind of discoveries, whether AI or quantum, whatever. I don't think it necessarily means direct impact on industry or industry outcomes. I don't think it means a change in competition or anything like that. But I do think that um, what you will see, if you just extend forward a little bit, uh, because all the large tech companies are involved in this, because it's central and pivotal to their business model, specifically that of search and internet access, what you're going to see is language models will continue to be developed out, possibly as a search and as an engagement tool for these companies to retain their, their competitive advantage and, and their industry place. If you see that happening, what you might see, again, I do this very lightly, is that our engagement with the way that we talk to computers and the way that we get them to do things for us will no longer be about clicking around boxes or less be about clicking around boxes and more about just expressing yourself and saying, look, I'd like you to book a flight for me going here to here to here. These are the kind of stops. Rather than clicking through Expedia, I would just want to have a conversation with something that will kind of shortcut a lot of that for me. That will break a lot of models of marketing and banners and all these different things that these companies are compensated through. There'll be a lot of questions around who owns these models and what their sources of truth are and so on. So I'm sure there'll be more regulation that will come out and go, okay, okay, listen, that's all fine and good, but you shouldn't use it for X, Y, Z. But at the core, I really like this analysis somebody gave at the beginning of this back in March, which was that it was potential to be a platform killer, which basically says that at the moment we build these platforms out of bricks, literally building, building blocks and squares, uh, with menu systems and whatever. And by introducing language, we kind of return to a conversation-based communication. And, and that changes everything. It changes the way that STEM and education systems will be built in the future. That changes the way that we might look for skills and implementations. Not, not like there's no programs. Of course, there'll be programs. Of course, there'll be other people. But at the moment, the balance has been so heavily shifted on their side that we might see a rebalancing back to the middle again. 
And I was just talking to somebody about this today, and, and they basically made the good point, which is that this could actually create a lot more gender balance as well in various different industries, because you're bringing back skills that have typically, um, or you, you're kind of lowering the dependence on skills that have been typically engineer and male dominated in universities. And now you're bringing it back to you know reasoning systems and language and all these different things, which are much more cross-gender and much more universal. So to a degree, it's like humanizing the interaction between the user and the machine and making it almost more like a conversation rather than a simple set of instructions. Exactly, exactly. And if you take that further, you'll get to this interesting point where you'll say, well, you know, how much can we use this technology directly for that communication to substitute human communication? And that's where things start to get a little bit more gray. But if you look at the good side of that, you say, well, there's a loneliness epidemic around the world, or there's aged care that needs conversation, or, or, or. And you go, wow, all of these things, not all of these, but many of these things could be helped by AI. Not, not, not consumed, not replaced, but helped by it. So I think there will be a push to deploy these systems in more humane conversational ways. And if they work and if they make people feel you know, happy and positive and whatever, the next place you'll see it will be your computer and your product and your technical products and your, and your software. Technological progress seems to be just accelerating uh, in, in the last five years. We almost, uh, I think there were some flutters of somebody coming up with a superconductor that didn't quite turn out to be the case. But we're definitely heading more towards the direction of quantum computing. Um, what could that have for effect on these type of language models? Because uh, we, we sort of referenced earlier, there are some challenges around uh, energy usage, cooling. Um, that could very rapidly disappear. Yeah, look, it, it's a great question. Um, I, I think the... F- I think if we start the other side of the argument and we say what could help us with the chip shortage and everything else, which is pretty severe and 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 it's kind of some of these things that are going to be probably playing a part in geopolitics as well going forward. Um, I think that we can make these models a lot more efficient. I think at the moment they're very inefficient. And I think by making them more um, kind of streamlined and specific to task will literally reduce in the same way that we did with Bitcoin or Ether or whatever, by changing the protocols, we reduce the energy consumption by 90-something percent, like it was very, very high. In the same kind of way, you go, yeah, okay, as soon as we start to streamline and put into products, we're going to go, right, we just don't need so much CPU, we just need much less for this particular task and so on. So I think I think that will be there. With quantum computers, I think what is yet to be determined, and quantum has been looking for good industry use cases for some time. So th- certainly things like cryptography, great, national defense, great. But what else? Simulation work, sure. A lot of lot of individual simulation items. But I think like language models, quantum may end up being a specific kind of operation and the boost of that kind of operation. And so it may not be like a universal uplift in all processing power across everywhere all at once. It might be a particular area of the economy. Now, if that's matrix multiplication or optimization, then we're in luck. Fantastic. GPUs get a quantum boost and then off we go. But don't forget even the, the usage of GPUs or graphic processing units for boosting AI and, and research in AI came about quite accidentally in the sense that I don't think it was planned that way. Now they've become the number one way to run these things because of their ability to do matrix kind of multiplication. But it certainly wasn't the way. So I, I think that collectively in humanity will... Um, now that we've discovered this thing called language to a, to a very high degree, 
will now get really good at making this very institutionalized, very operationalized, very diversified. What's uh, on the agenda for, for you? What, uh, what are you up to in the next couple of months? So, I mean, th this year has been an incredible year for me in the sense that I've spent, we were just chatting before we started, that I've spent a lot of my time on the conference circuit talking about AI and generative AI, and that's really um, where I've been doing some great work and, and education and getting people up the curve and, and getting them more comfortable, I suppose, and, and in, into this kind of thing. What I personally am very excited about is the AI adoption journey. So when we talk about Australia being the 17th of the 17 countries, that gets me excited because now we can move it to the 10th or the 8th. I don't think we'll ever get it to top five, but we might move it up a little bit. And all the masterclasses I've done and all of the workshops I've done tell me that the average Australian, who could be 25 to 75-year-olds, is excited, is interested, but needs a different voice, needs help, needs a little bit of... Don't worry, you have a place in this future. And one of the things that motivates me personally is this idea of empowering people to say, I, there is a future for me here. There, there is an interesting and exciting. It's not one that I'm afraid of. It's not one where I'm going to be de-skilled de or disabled or minoritized and so on. So a lot of Evolve Reasoning and the mission behind Evolve Reasoning was how do we get people up the food chain or up, up the AI tech curve because what we want to do is we want, they want, to, we want them to feel enabled and evolved and so on. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of that, more of that education. It's a lot of that workshop. It's a lot of that working with financial services organizations to get them uh, and their staff, importantly, using this technology, understanding its strengths and weaknesses. And then, like everything else, it's about building products off the back of that, building the kinds of, on the kinds of use cases. And the world that I want to see is one where in five years from now, we're talking about each other and we're getting very excited about the next new thing that's coming or the next app or the next thing that might be interesting because we feel like an AI-filled world is one where, you know, it, it's interesting for us rather than an AI-filled one where is one where we're anxious and filled with intrepidation and wondering if, if oh my God, here we go again, yet another hype cycle kind of feeling, which, which I feel like is, is the kind of the, the case at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the short term, we, we sometimes are a little bit disappointed by what these things can do. But in the long term, you think, well, I, I sometimes sit back and think I was uh, of a generation that uh, grew up without the internet. And now I can't talk to my kids about that because they just don't understand really what a world like that looked like. To a degree, it's, it's, it's quite exciting actually to, to sort of be at the forefront of this revolution in AI and um, you know, I'm quite curious to see what else comes out of this. Yeah, 100%. Look at, and, and I think the idea of how we perceive reality and effort, uh, evolution, I think, is very interesting as well. Because evolution happens at some rate, but as human beings, I think if it happens too fast, we get threatened. So if you look at what happened in early this year, it was like terrible stories about super intelligence, we're all going to die, whatever, da, da, da. Lots of that kind of defensiveness. And then over time, there's, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, I guess we're not going to all die. Well, I'm a bit disappointed now because I was kind of gearing myself up, up to meet still the Still have to buy my groceries. Yeah, I still have to buy, you know, yeah, and, then, and then you pull out your phone and use the app to do it for <laughs> you. It gets delivered by drone. You're like, oh, I can't believe I had to do that. But I think over the medium to long run, as you say, there are moments, I think, in history where you look back and go, that was the moment when that technology started to come online. And, you know, people compare this AI with internet. To me, internet is still much bigger. We literally created a different world. We created a digital world that did not exist before. And we've transferred a lot of our activities into that digital world now, from shopping to meeting to dating to, to talking to whatever. 
And so we've literally, it didn't exist before we created it. With AI, I think we've created a digitally native entity that will fit into that digital world really well. In fact, only works in a digital world and will replicate our conversation, our abilities, our skills as so within that world. Now, obviously, the question now becomes over time, do we, will, will we have a place in the digital world as human beings? Will all be a bit analog humans kind of working in digital? I don't know. But again, I'm somebody who has children, who thinks about the future, who thinks about their future. And I don't see that we can overcome many of the kind of bigger problems like climate change and other things without a much more complex uh, approach to management of resources, to management of energy, to management of people. Um, and I think these kinds of AI systems, so long as they don't create inequality and are used to minoritize, if we keep a human rights perspective kind of active, I, I think are necessary for our species to thrive. Yeah, yeah, that control over the future systems is, is an important one as well. But at the same time, it's exciting times. Absolutely. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time. I uh, appreciate coming to the studio. And uh, yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.